Hey guys, real quick, before we get started, I have a small request. If you've been blessed by our content and you like this show, would you take just a brief moment and leave us a five-star review? This is quite possibly the most effective thing that you can do to ensure that this content gets out to as many people as possible. Thanks. In this episode of Theology Applied, we jump right into the conversation. I'm joined again by Pastor Jeff Durbin of Apologia Church and Apologia Studios. And our big focus today is on one of the most rank heresies alive and well in the church in America, antinomianism, that is against law. Our church and evangelicalism in our nation today despises the law of God, hates the law of God. And they do all of this in the name of being gospel-centered. They truncate the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are not gospel-centered, but gospel-myoptic. See, gospel-centered assumes that there's something around the center, and I would argue that the gospel of Jesus Christ is flanked by the law of God to the left and the right. On one side, we have the first use of God's law, that it reveals to us our need for a savior. Then we have for the Christian, the third use of the law of God. It is a lamp unto our feet. It's the light. It's the guide, the compass that shows us where to go. Not the path to salvation, but the path for the Christian from salvation in obedience to God. Obedience to God, not to merit his favor, but as a response of gratitude for the free gift of salvation we have by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But sadly, The American evangelical church has rejected the three uses of the law, especially this third use. And that has influenced, I believe, and so does Jeff, the state. How can we expect the state to uphold justice, equal weights, equal measures, when the church doesn't uphold justice? There is only one standard, and that is the eternal law of God. It's either theonomy or autonomy. That is God's law or man's law. When the church rejects God's law, how in the world can we expect the state to be just in accordance to God's law? These are the questions. These are the issues that we explore in today's episode of Theology Applied. Applying God's word to every aspect of life. This is Theology Applied. So I have a little bit of a different story. You know, I, I was an Acts 29 pastor for a while. I come from the gospel-centered everything tribe where everything, you know, is a gospel issue. Everything's gospel-centered, but they mean it in a very different sense. What they mean is, so like, well, just to be clear. So Timothy Keller, Matt Chandler, um, this kind of group, when, when they say uh, a gospel issue, um, uh, it's it's always gospel issues are always it's race racial reconciliation um, all their in, in a nutshell all the gospel issues are um, also happen to be synonymous with the Democrat platform. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's good probably point. the simplest that I can say. So so if you yeah. want to know what is a gospel uh, issue, don't look at the Bible and exegete it. Uh, just look at the Democrat platform because Timothy Keller is a registered Democrat. Uh, Mark Dever is a registered Democrat. Um, and so just look at that platform and you can see, you know, what, what is a gospel issue? And now if you talk about abortion, that's not a gospel issue. That's um, talking about abortion. That's, well, that's not a gospel issue. That's, um, that's a justice issue, you know, or that's the law. And so I think that for some, because I've heard people say, even with the same sex mirage and these kind of things, I've heard people say 
Uh, well, when it comes to that, you know, really, um, you know, I'm okay with same-sex marriage. You know, I, I think it's wrong. I think it's a sin, but I don't want to, you know, I don't think that Christians should be imposing their morality on, on this particular issue, you know, imposing their religion. So I say, you know, let them, let them eat cake, let them, let them marry and let them have tax, you know, tax benefits. So my point is, yes, um, I agree with you that there is, um, unequal weights and measures in, in terms of we're inconsistently applying God's law word to different sins, to different issues like abortion and, and, um, the, you know, sodomy. Um, however, at the same time, I see a lot of people in the gospel centered tribe. And I'm talking about, again, I'm talking about Acts 29. I'm talking about gospel coalition. I'm talking about young reformed and restless kind of guys that followed Driscoll and then decided that he was toxic, you know, and that masculinity was a bad idea. And they got skinny jeans instead. And they started being effeminate and, you know, hanging out with Russell Moore. And so like that crew, I think it's not so much um, that, that, yeah, we're quick to, um, to decry homosexuality, but, but then over here, we're being shifty when it comes to abortion. No, I think they're shifty everywhere. And, and I think a lot of our, our, our listeners are in, you know, or at least familiar with these kinds of churches and these kinds of Christian groups um, that, that, that I, don't, I don't think they're equally applying God's law word anywhere. And I think the problem is, the reason why is because, uh, for one, they, they don't understand sphere sovereignty. They don't understand uh, the home, the church, and the state. Um, and so they think, well, we're supposed to be gracious. We're supposed to be, you know, mer-. yeah, the church has a ministry of mercy, um, but, but to the state has been given a sword. It, it has a ministry of justice. And Justice. part of the way that the church functions in its its ministry of, of, of word and sacrament, this ministry of mercy, um, churches, I believe, is, we always say, well, you know, the, the blood of the martyrs is the seedbed for the church. Yes and amen a thousand times. Um, but the church also... Um, historically has grown leaps and bounds um, when, when, the, when there were people in the civil magistrate who, who were paving the way for gospel ministers uh, to do their work. And, and, a, and a healthy, what I'm saying is a healthy state with the sword in a ministry of justice helps in, in, a, great, in a great degree, helps the, a healthy church with a ministry of word and sacrament gospel uh, because justice and law is the bad news, the black velvet backdrop that makes the diamond of the good news, mercy, word, sacrament, shine all the brighter. And so I think that that because we have such an unhealthy state, and I would argue in much of evangelicalism, we have a very unhealthy church, an antinomian church. I'm talking about new covenant theologians. Uh, in the most technical sense, that is antinomianism, the the rejection of the third use of God's law. Um, And so if if you have an antinomian church, right, um, that that they reject the law of God, and then then you have this pagan secular antinomian state, then, then the law is just nowhere to be found. The law is nowhere to be found. And so Christians, so, so yes, it, it may be the, the hypocrisy and inconsistency of Christians will call out one sin, but they won't call out this other one of abortion. But in my experience, just bringing an, another side of the coin, because I think there's Christians of all types. There's, there's the one that you have described in the pro-life industry, because I, I, I wouldn't question you on that, brother. I know that you've spent time with people who profess, they, they, they claim the name of Christ and, and they would call homosexuality an abomination. And they're over here 
here making deals with the devil with abortion with unequal weights and measures saying yep. you can murder this many kids you know 99 kids but not 100 um, so that exists there is that that category but I'm saying there's there's also this category where everything is just wishy-washy and truncated into this this pseudo grace that's a cheap grace Bonhoeffer I did disagree with them on a lot of things you know so I always always feel like I got to give a caveat whenever I reference Bonhoeffer but his cheap grace idea he 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 nailed it when it comes to that this cheap grace and and so I think that churches need to start preaching the law of God um, and they need to start preaching the third use of the law of God that the law of God first it's a mirror it reveals to me my need for a savior Spurgeon said a man cannot appreciate the beauty of Christ unless he first comes to see the necessity of of Christ so I need to see that I'm a sinner and that goes with what you were saying earlier I was going to say a lot of times in pastoral counseling it's always funny, um, but but I have seen again and again, and I'm sure you've witnessed this also, I have seen members of my church look at me with, with gratitude and joy um, because of the hope of recognizing that their biggest problem in their marriage or their biggest problem in their sin or their, uh, uh, their parenting or their biggest problem in their addiction, that the, the, the biggest problem is not biology. It's not some kind of psychological condition. Um, it's not some kind of chemical. Um, it, it, it is sin. And sin, although it so- sounds ironic, I, 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 one day I want to write a book on the, the hope of sin. It is so hopeful for the Christian to recognize that the problem that's bringing so much destruction in my life and in the lives of others that I love, my family, my friends, my church, my community, it is so hopeful to recognize, oh, the source of my, my problem is sin. That is a hopeful reality because sin can be changed. Sin can be repented of. Uh, psychological, some kind of chemical, you know, that, like what we do in all these categories. So, so we could go with abortion, what we're talking about with mothers. They don't know, right? We can just change the category and, and all the talks you've done about AA, same principle, right? So it's, they don't know. And, and all these things, the principle is the same. It's victim, victim, victim. And it's anything and everything except for a moral, clear, willful choice of sin. It's always some kind of, um, it's biology or, or it's, um, it's some kind of chemical or, or it's something that's psychology. It's all, we always are taking sin out of the realm of moral will and, and putting it into some other category to absolve the person of guilt. But what we do in, in a nutshell, <laughs> landing the plane, what, what I've noticed is, is that preaching that absolves men of guilt also robs them of hope. Preaching that uh, absolves men of guilt, it robs them of hope. And, and although, yes, we, we don't want to berate people. We don't want to kick them while they're down. We don't want to condemn them, especially if they're a Christian. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But what I wish all my gospel-centered, you know, Timothy Keller-loving friends back in the day, what I wish that they knew and what I now know by God's grace and, and bringing me on this theological journey is um, that the gospel does not produce a shame-free zone. The gospel provides a place where shame can be dealt with. We think that, that, that because of the gospel, there is no more shame. And I would argue that for the Christian who believes the gospel, at least in my experience and according to my Bible, um, post-conversion and as I in sanctification come to a deeper spiritual maturity and a deeper understanding of the gospel, I experience more shame for sin, not less. The difference, though, is that shame is not 
indefinite. It's not permanent. I experience a heightened sting of shame in God's mercy and the way he disciplines his sons, Hebrews 12, but it drives me to the cross where my shame is not um, manipulated. My shame is not um, dealt with lightly, um, but my shame is actually dealt with in full. It's actually removed. Um, the, the, the shame is, is done away with. And so I think that in the church, in the name of grace, in the name of gospel, and in the name of truncating categories, fears of state and church and justice and mercy, and, and in the name of antinomianism and, and new covenant theology and all these different things and getting rid of the law of God, especially its third use, that it doesn't just reveal sin, but it's a lamp unto my feet. It guides the Christian. The law shows us where to go. And in the name of all this bad theology, we, we, we think that, that we're supposed to provide for people um, a shame-free zone. Whereas I would say that the preaching of not just God's law, but even in the preaching of the gospel, because in the gospel we see what our sin does. Our sin nailed Jesus to the cross. It's serious. That is the penalty for sin. If you don't think your sin is severe, look at the cross. Look at Jesus, bloodied, hanging, suffocating. Uh, in the same way you can look at those babies in the video that you put out, those babies in, 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 with bashed in skulls, and you can say, this is what sin does. In the same way for the Christian, we can also look um, to another child, the child of God, the son of God, who was crucified and, and, and bludgeoned and bloodied, hanging there and say, that's how serious my sin is. And it doesn't create a shame-free zone. It doesn't minimize shame. It intensifies it, but for a hopeful reason, to drive us to the cross where that shame is ultimately not just manipulated, not just hidden, not just tucked away, not just that someone's talked out of it, but it's actually done. It's finished. It's dealt with in final. And, and so I, I say all that to say there's the inconsistent guys in the Christian realm who, who may or may not be regenerate, but, but who would profess Christ that you described, who will deal with homosexuality in one way and abortion in another. But then I think there's also these other guys who actually would consistently deal with all of it poorly because of all the reasons I've just stated. So I, I just wanted to throw right. that in the, in, into the puzzle. Yeah, no, I think it's important. I think you highlight the, the main issue in terms of the church in the West and our approach to so many areas of, of sin and moral decay all around us is the issue of antinomianism. And that is for those guys, for those of you who are new to that, it's the idea that there, there's no law um, anti no it's from namas the greek word for law it's people who are essentially saying you know that old testament was law new testament's all grace that law stuff doesn't matter anymore or they just act in their christian life in a free way that is a lawless way right. so it it um it should be no surprise to any believer that if the church is antinomian and is into antinomianism um and they're preaching um no law. Mm -hmm. uh, it should be no surprise to us that the state acts so lawless. Church is the light. The That's church right. reveals God's word. If they are without law, then the state becomes lawless. That's right. And uh, that's precisely the connection we need to make. So how do you actually restrain a uh, perverse 
example of what is supposed to be the deacon of God, God's civil right. magistrate who's supposed to wield the, how do you, how do you restrain them uh, from being so lawless? You have to have the prophetic ministry of the Christian church that is actually preaching to the deacon, God's law word, his standards and what they're supposed to uphold and how they're supposed to wield that sword in a just way. Amen. Romans, uh, Romans 13 was quoted so many times the last two years during COVID in such a perverse way by so many evangelicals just obey the state, obey the state. Look, Romans 13, obey the state, obey the state. Well, if you really think about Romans 13, it actually says that the, the, the state is God's deacon. That's the, that's the servant of God. There's only one God. There's only one true and living God. And the deacon is supposed to be the servant of that true God, not the servant of some other God. That's right. So if you, if you evangelicals love Romans 13, y'all should get on board with theonomy because mm. if it's the deacon of God, then that means that it has to have a standard by which it wields the sword. And God has revealed a standard. If you have any question about how God feels about that standard, I would just encourage you to go sing Psalm 119. It'll take you a while, but go sing it and go sing it a lot. Maybe it'll change our hearts in this area. But people will say, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm getting all of that now. I see that it's a gospel issue. I see that we shouldn't compromise. But, you know, isn't abortion still going to take place even if it's criminalized? And, it, and what I would say to that is this, I understand the concern, but it is a fallen world and we criminalize murder and we establish justice in that area and yeah. people are still killing people. But we get less of it. Significantly we get less. That's, less. that's exactly my point is that we, cri <laughs> yeah. we criminalize rape right. and people still rape, but they get punished for it and we get less of it. And I want to say another thing, uh, we criminalized slavery in this country mm -hmm. didn't we yeah. are we all glad that we did that and yeah. how did we get that we got that because of the law word of god we got that because of the christian worldview it wasn't atheism that gave us that it was christianity that gave us the abolition of slavery pure unadulterated that's the history that's what happens but guess what there are still some remnant forms of slavery taking place around us i mean think about the issue of sex trafficking it still goes on but aren't we all glad that slavery is a criminal act in the united states of america and that came from the church it came from the law word of god and i want to say that when you think about the issue of abortion someone says well you know hey if we criminalize it people are still going to do it it's like let me ask you a question do you think statistically comparing the numbers today of child sacrifice and murdering our children, do you think they're higher or about the same as the numbers, say, in the 19th century in this nation? How about we say astronomically, astronomically higher when we had abortion as a crime and seen as homicide in these United States, um, yes, there were women who still uh, took pills and took potions to try to kill their own children. Yes, that takes place. And yeah, we can talk about back alley abortions, but I just wanna say this, um, that the law of God has a preservation effect, mm -hmm. as a preservation That's effect. That's the second it, use of the law. Yeah. It has a preservation effect. And you know, I just, I'll say quickly, when someone says, we're just gonna do it in back alleys, my response to that is something I heard from a friend years ago. I was like, that's the perfect way to express that, is exactly the take place in back alleys because that's where murder is supposed to take place right hidden away not 
in the public square. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you look at the word of God, Ecclesiastes chapter eight, very important in terms of this conversation about justice and the law of God, those sorts of things. Um, in uh, Ecclesiastes eight eleven, it says, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, mm -hmm. the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Mm -hmm. And so when we do not actually uphold, establish, and execute justice, God's word says that the heart of man is fully set to do evil. Right. When you allow wickedness and sin and depravity around you, people's hearts are depraved. They are going to go headlong into it. Right. And, and so that's, real quick, that's the to, issue of abortion. Yeah. You're, you're absolutely right. And to contrast that real quick, because some people say, well, doesn't, doesn't Genesis chapter six say, you know, that, that man, his only intention ever all the time was, to, you know, evil. And it's like, okay, yeah, that's just the picture of total depravity. That's the heart of man. That's his desire. But, but there's a difference in the Bible where it speaks to the heart of man in terms of his evil, wicked desires uh, versus when the Bible says what he is set on doing. So when Ecclesiastes chapter eight is talking, what you just referenced, Jeff, which is fantastic to bring to, into the conversation, but, but that is a reference saying um, it, it's deeper than just, Oh, um, uh, so justice isn't carried out swiftly. And then people's hearts became evil. No, 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 no. People's hearts were already evil. Yep. So the Bible's not saying this introduces the doctrine of total depravity. Right. Right. No, what it's saying is that this takes, what, what this does is it takes someone whose heart is already depraved, but now their heart is set on actually doing it. There were certain certain degrees and measures of depravity within the heart of man that would never come out. And we have to realize that in God's common grace, and again, that's the second use of the law. So the first use, I always say uh, mirror, shield, and compass. Mirror, shield, and compass, right? So the mirror, the first use of, of, of the law of God is it reveals to us uh, that we're a sinner. The law doesn't save us, um, but the law does drive us to the Savior. It drives us to Christ. So the law of God works as a mirror uh, because the law is a reflection of God's own holiness. And we have to remember this. God loves his law just as much as he loves his gospel. Both reveal the character of God. In the law of God, we see his holiness, his righteousness, his judgment judgments, which are terrible and wicked and not wicked, but terrible and fierce, um, his judgment, but they are right and they are good and they are holy. Uh, but then in the gospel of God, we see his grace and his mercy. So both are a revelation of God's own character, his law and his gospel. So the law doesn't save us, but no man will be saved by works as done unto the law is what Romans says, but the law does drive us to a savior. So first use of the law, it's a mirror. It shows us God's holiness and, and by way of consequence, our sinfulness, the chasm in between that cannot be bridged by anything that we do or anything that we choose. We need Christ. The second use is what you were talking about, that preservation use, that the law is like a shield. So even for the unbeliever, um, that the law of God actually um, restrains evil in societies, not just individuals, but in whole societies. There are pagans, unbelievers, who, who's in their mind, their mind of the sinful man is hostile towards God. So they're at enmity with God. Uh, the Bible would say that they hate God. They're totally depraved. And yet there are certain fantasies. There are certain uh, ideologies. There, there are certain, all these different things in their depravity, in their hearts and in their minds that they will never not Christian, an unbeliever, a pagan, they will never actually do. They will live for 90 years and certain wicked things that they actually desired will never actually be carried out in their actions. Why? Why? Because the, the sword, the one who bears the sword, would you have no fear of him who rules over you? Then do what is right. Right, right where we all misexecuted that and says, we, we took that to mean then do what he says. 
which Romans 13 does not say. <laughs> Would you have no fear of the one who rules over you? Then do what he says. Nope. Then do what is right. According to who? God. By what standard? God's standard. And so, so when the civil magistrate is acting appropriately according to God's law, which is theonomy, it, it, number one, it's, it partners with the church, in a sense, in that first use of the law. There are people who will walk off the street into a church already ready to receive Christ as Savior because the, the state preached to them law rightly as it was meant to and so they were already ripe for the harvest so there's the first first uh, use of the law the second is it restrains evil which allows the gospel to flourish yes the gospel flourishes under persecution but it also flourishes uh, when the state is acting justly and then thirdly the third use of the law is that it is a lamp unto our feet it doesn't show us the way to salvation it shows us the way from salvation how to respond because if god loves us right first john 4 19 we love because he first loved us well if if God loves me and awakens my heart to that love, I, he causes me to be born again, gives me a, a new nature, causes me to be a new creature in Christ Jesus, endows me with the gifts of faith and repentance to turn from sin and to turn to Christ. If God loves me like that, salvifically, I cannot help but respond. So here's the Calvinism coming. I cannot help but respond with love for God. But the very next question is, God, you love me like that? I love you too. I love you too. How can I show you that I love you? In comes Jesus. If you love me, you'll obey me. Great. What are your commandments? I've got two of them. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Great. And I get to decide like a blank canvas for my creative license and freedom. What is loving to God and what is loving to neighbor? Nope. These are two tables of the law. They are expounded upon in detail in Exodus chapter 20. The first four of the Ten Commandments tells you how to love your, the Lord your God. The next six of the Ten Commandments tells you how to love your neighbor. Oh, I thought that didn't apply anymore. Wrong. It does. It does. And, and so these three uses of the law, Christians have forgotten we, we don't preach God's law. We don't think about God's law. That's why we're sitting ducks and suckers for tyranny with the state. I mean, all, the thing, all these things we can track back to what I would call a, a gospel truncation, um, a, a gospel myopticism, where it's all gospel, but, but no law. And here's the irony. There is no gospel without the law. There is no good news without the bad news, because Paul says this, he says, I'm convinced, first, uh, his first letter to Timothy, he says, this is saying is trustworthy and true that Christ died for sinners. If you're a pretty good person, Christ didn't die for you. If, 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 you're, um, if, if you're not a wretch, Christ didn't die for you. The hope of sin is that Christ died for sinners, but nobody thinks they're a sinner these days in the church, in the state, in, in the culture. And it's because we have so perverted and so disdained the law of God. And that is not, first and foremost, something that was done by our pagan culture. It was done by the church. I kind of feel like baby boomers, but the church. And I'll leave it there. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot to answer for there. And I think when someone is really trying to unpack this conversation and says, and says things like, rightly, that it's a gospel issue, we would say, well, Christ died for sinners what is sin? Mm -hmm. Sin is lawlessness. Okay. What's the law? Right. <laughs> right. Like what law? Whose law? What law? Whose law? Where's that found? And, uh, you know, 
we live in a time where, again, we've been so discipled by our culture and the church itself has been discipled by the culture. We've lost sight of the fact that historically the Christian church didn't really have any problem or take issue with the fact that when you had a question about justice or what was a righteous standard, uh, you need to go to the law of God to figure that out. You go to God's revelation. I mean, even in this you know, we're talking, we're speaking, people have probably watched this around the world, but we're thinking about this particular American experiment. We're talking about something that took place as a result of uh, the Huguenots, the Puritans, those Christians, the Covenanters, their descendants coming over uh, from Europe and, and from France and those sorts of things, uh, you know, coming over here and establishing colonies and it was the, I always say this, the, the law of God and the biblical revelation was just in the atmosphere, you know, early on in this, this experiment, you know, even if you weren't explicitly a Christian, you find people who were not explicitly Christians acknowledging the fact that they're living within a Christian framework mm. and there is a context to their circumstances and there is a law above all of their heads and they would even acknowledge, uh, yeah, that's Christ. That's the Bible. That's where that comes from. And, and they knew that living in this kind of culture and society that they had to submit to that because that's the foundation of it. I mean, you have got colonies early on that would specifically name the God of the Bible when they would do treaties or contracts, covenants, they'd name the triune God of Holy scripture yeah. in it. And uh, I always announce this because, it's very, very important in this discussion about law and uh, the magistrate, uh, John Jay, our first Supreme Court justice, uh, who gave us the case law system that we have in this country, got that case law system, not just from, you know, uh, historic Christianity and how that came, but he got it from Moses and he would quote copiously, consistently from the Old Testament law of God as he was giving examples, he would actually quote explicitly from scripture. Okay. Uh, that was our first Supreme Court justice, John Jay. Interesting, isn't it wild? He didn't seem to be ashamed or afraid of the response of the population that he was quoting from Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy as he was appealing to a standard for the case law stuff he was doing and the, the, the standard of justice. He, it's, it was just assumed everyone's going to understand why I'm quoting Moses here right. because that's our king, Jesus Christ. This is his law word. And so we're so detached from that. And let's be honest, it was not that long ago. I mean, I got, I'm 44 years old. Believe it or not, I'm 44 years old. This life is passing by. It is zipping by. I mean, I felt like I was 22 years old yesterday. It, I'm 44 years old. So I've lived on this earth for more than four decades now. Almost five decades I've been on this planet, and that is such a quick amount of time. It happens so fast. My kids now, I got two kids now uh, that are, that are uh, you know, getting up, climbing up to 25 years old. I got three grandkids. I was having a conversation with my daughter the other day, and, uh, you know, like gee, 22 years old, I'm thinking to myself, oh, my goodness, like, you're already going through your 20s. I, I, was, I was just putting diapers on you. Mm. She's going to be 30 before I know it and before she knows it. And I said that to her. So you can be 30 before you know it. Enjoy every moment of what you're doing with your daughter right now. You know, I'm just all this to say that this time on earth happens so fast. And I just want to say that that, what I was just referring to with John Jay, Supreme Court Justice, quoting the law of God, all that foundation in this country was not really that long ago and we can get it back 
it was, yeah, it's not that long ago. And I want to say, so what that displays to us is that, of course, God can move like that in history. It wasn't a utopia, of course. Amen to that. Yes, we have lots of work to do. But the point is, is that you can lose it all very fast, too. Right. You can go from a place where your Supreme Court justice is quoting from Moses to establish uh, standards of justice and righteousness in society to the place where the Supreme Court <laughs> says, kill the children. Uh, I don't know. What a, not, I don't know what a woman is. I don't know what a woman is. <laughs> uh, men can marry men. Women can marry women. And you can do that within the space of a couple hundred years. Right, right. And answer, how in the world does that happen? And the answer is the Christian church is primarily responsible. Amen. You said it. You said it, Joel. If we are antinomian, if we are lawless, if we preach antinomianism, then don't be surprised when the state becomes lawless Amen. because they've lost their light. And, and I know you got to go. So let's go ahead and wrap it up. But real quick, I just want to add to that the hopeful piece of, all right, the slippery slope, we can lose it overnight. All that is abundantly true. And, you know, I was interjecting a little bit, but what I was trying to say is uh, we can lose it, but we can also gain it. And, and the reason why I want to mention that is because, um, you know, when it, when it comes to eschatology, when it comes to late premillennialism and dispensationalism, and these kinds of things, and, and, you know, that things are just going to progressively spiral out of control. It is the will of God. He has ordained that things would get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse until he comes again. Um, that is just not, that is not historically accurate. I would argue first and foremost, I, I don't think it's biblically accurate, but it's also not historically accurate. And I think it was so helpful for me. And um, that's another thing that God's used you and Doug Wilson and other guys to help me with, with this, you know, this post millennial hope, like the Puritans, God's used Jonathan Edwards, you know, and man, it's so cool and encouraging to look at the descendants of Edwards, you know, and, and what they've yeah. done and how significant his kids and grandkids and great, great, you know, but, um, but, but it's important to see historically one of the things that was so persuasive for me was seeing um, it has not been a slow, perfectly gradual decline in morality among every culture globally for the past 2000 years. That is not true. There were empires that, that people thought there is no chance in, in hell that this wicked, oppressive empire will ever be overthrown, that, that light would ever shine again, uh, that, that good would ever triumph over evil. And lo and behold, God sends Davids who kill Goliaths. Babylon fell, and I know that's before Christ. Babylon fell, but Rome fell. Uh, the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, I mean, what is the Reformation, right? We always say, after darkness, light. Right. You know, and I just hear Ligonier in the back of my head and I appreciate Ligonier, you know, but after darkness, light. And it's like, yes and amen. And that wasn't, that wasn't before Christ. That was 1500 years after Christ. After darkness, light can happen again. It can happen today. It can happen with us, with our children, with our grandchildren. It's not over. And, and, and that doesn't mean that America is destined by God to continue. Um, but the church will. And whether America repents and comes to Christ because it can't just be a conservative resurgence. It must be a distinctly Christian revival. So, so America will have to repent. And as Wilson always says, and they must say his name, Jesus, they'll have to repent. And if America does repent and comes back, that can happen. And if it doesn't, then America will be used as the, the fodder. It'll be used as the, the fertilizer for the next nation that will spring up. And, and there's hope for that nation to be a Christian nation. But this 
we forget that the nations are God's idea. He sets boundaries and, and borders and periods of times, Acts 17, 26. And it's not just that God ordained this to be for a while, uh, but we know it is God's indefinite plan until the return of Christ because he is coming back for the nations. They are his inheritance. And he's going to be coming back for nations that, that will bow to him and worship him and adore him and um it's happened before. So it's not just look at how quickly things can fall. Um, I, I look at the slippery slope. Yes and amen. That's true. And let that be um, a, a frightening warning to us. Um, but if we look at history and we look at other nations, not just before the cross, but post Christ in the last 2000 years, we can see not just how things have fallen into moral decay, how, how nations have turned their backs on Christ, but we can also see what happened when revival, God sent revival to nations, when they became Christian and, and the empires that were built and the benevolence, global benevolence and good that was done. Um, and, and it's hopeful. So Yes, that's right. All right. Always, any any final thoughts? Came, uh, well, I'm sorry, go everything, ahead. Go ahead. Everything you're saying. Uh, is glorious and it's a hope for the future and every place that it took place it if there was ever transformation and revival it always took place because of a proclamation of the truth i mean that when you when you think back and you mentioned jonathan edwards when you think back to you know these moments of revival and and awakenings in our country they took place because the gospel was preached pretty faithfully and uh that's how it happens and we have a compromised church, a lawless church, and we have a church that's only focused in upon entertainment and uh, developing uh, intimate personal relationships uh, <laughs> rather than a church that's focused in upon Christ the King, his, his word is the truth. And uh, that's ultimately where our satisfaction is going to be. If people want to have pleasure and delight, they're only going to find it in God's world, in God's way. And if you say, well, what is God's way? I'd say, well, I have a pretty good revelation to show you, to talk to you about what does that look like? And so, you know, you mentioned developing and growing in the Christian life. And I think what we find as believers is the place, the, the trial we get through when we overcome sin in our lives, the place that we get to after that, where we have more maturity, but not just maturity, but more joy, more patience, more peace, more delight in God, more intimacy with God. We find ourselves in that stage of sanctification where we get past this thing and God's shaped us and molded us and we're here now. We find ourselves here now and experiencing all those pleasures of God in that place. But how? Because now we're more obedient. Right. <laughs> because, because now we're more like Jesus who mm-hmm. kept the law of God perfectly. So in a, in a way, the, the only way to peace with God is through faith and faith alone in Christ. But the only way to like an, a, 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 a peace where you are experiencing peace in terms of your daily walk is through obedience to God. Yeah. Right. right. Like you experience, you experience pleasure and peace and joy and rejoicing when you are obeying God's word. And so, you know, if you want to experience delight and joy, of course, trusting and trusting in Christ and it comes through him, of course, but on a practical level, you experience that because you're obeying. Yeah. Like if someone is, I'll just say this quickly. If someone is struggling deeply with anxiousness and fear, the way to handle that is not merely give them a pill but it's to show them what God's word said is, is true about them and his world and him. Mm-hmm. And that 
obeying him when he says, do not be worried. Why? Because this is what God is like, because this is who God is. When you obey that, you experience freedom from anxiety and fear. Why? Because you're obeying God's word and what God's word says about him. You're yielding to God's word. So if you want peace and joy and comfort and satisfaction, it's only going to come ultimately experientially through a place of obedience. And that obedience is really found in terms of, well, what's that look like? Obedience to what? I'd say it's God's word. That's the answer. God's word. Yeah. And people will listen to that. I have no doubt and think that that's a works-based gospel, but that's not at all what you're talking about. My burden is easy. My, my, my burden is light. My yoke is easy. Uh, what, what is the secret to this, this light burden, this easy yoke? Um, part, part of it is recognizing that um, it's not whether, but which you're, you're going to be a slave of somebody, uh, a prophet mm-hmm. once said, Yeah, that's know? right. and, uh, and every slave master um, has some kind of yoke and some kind of burden. And, uh, and Jesus is the only master who, who calls us his slaves and in the same breath calls us his friends. He's, he's mm-hmm. the only master who helps to sh- shoulder the burden with us. And I have found in my walk with Christ that part of the secret of the, the burden being light and the yoke being easy of Christ and him giving me rest um, is, is long rhythms of, of daily obedience. Uh, the more I walk towards Christ, the easier it gets. And that doesn't mean there's not more persecution. That doesn't mean there aren't new temptations. Um, but, but what I'm saying is that as I'm becoming more, made more into the image of Christ and daily obeying, um, they're, they're, it's like you're working out the muscles of obedience. And you're learning to not just see the law of God as right, but as good. You're delighting in the law of God, like David says. And and part of it also, even just in ministry, um, Coming to some of these doctrines, at first, it was excruciating. I lost half my church. You know, this was a couple of years ago when I was still in California and God used it to get me out of California. I'm grateful. But there was there, there is always going to be an immense uh, um, initial cost. Maybe I could call it that an initial cost to following Christ, whether this is initial uh, in, in your conversion or, or maybe even post-conversion, but where you finally are coming into the law of God and actually living out your conversion, living in obedience. When you make these big changes, repentance, there's a cost to discipleship um, when, you, when you're making these, these big changes. Um, but really, a, a big part of that, what we have to recognize is, is what it assumes is that you were, um, you're making a big change because you were really wrong previously. You were really off. You weren't being obedient. You, you, you thought you knew the truth, but you were wrong. Your theology was bad. Your, your, your actions were wrong. And, and so you make these initial changes and there's an immediate cost. Um, but you don't pay that same cost every single day. I get people all the time. How can you be so bold, Joel? I say, I watch your videos, you know, you're so bold. My, my church, my new church that I'm planting now, um, they're all coming to the church because of this boldness, not despite it. So, so when I first engaged in boldness in my previous church with people I had attracted through compromise, theological compromise, when I changed and repented, um, I lost those people. A lot of those people, some changed with me, by God, but I, there was an initial cost that was heavy. But, but at this point, it's like, you know, people are like, oh man, you're so bold. And I'm like, yeah, I, I guess strangers that I'll never even meet hate me on the internet, but 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 the people in my church of a hundred people are are congratulating me, thanking me, loving me, caring for my wife. Like like, you know what I mean? It's like I'm, yeah, I'm like this isn't this is a light burden. This is a, yeah. an easy yoke, and and it yeah. comes through obedience. 
Yeah, and I to I guess put a cherry on top of all this in terms of if anybody would ever have any confusion, uh, mixing law and gospel for justification before God and peace with God is is something that is worthy of hell and it will send you to hell. And so there is no other way to peace with God uh, other than faith in Christ alone, apart from any work of law. When I was what I was saying that I think is so important in terms of when I have peace with God in terms of how God increases my joy in him, increases my peace, increases my satisfaction in him. He does so through a means of sanctification, but that sanctification is according to his word. Mm -hmm. So I'll just give one example of what I mean by that in terms of like increasing my peace, increasing my joy, increasing my satisfaction in God. Um, For me, one of my great sins was a drug and alcohol addiction. And so all I would do, every single day is waste money on drugs, pursue drugs, pursue partying. And it always left me wanting. It always left me hurting. It nearly killed me a number of times. And I can always remember the pain that was associated with pursuing that false God. I was going to it for pleasure. I was going to it for satisfaction. It took the weight and the glory of my life. I was sacrificing everything to it. That's worship, by the way, Um, glory and sacrifice. And all it would do is it would leave me, you know, traveling down an Arizona canal, almost drowning, uh, drowning at 6 a.m. Or it'd leave me, you know, uh, almost ODing on six tabs of ecstasy or whatever. And, um, and it was always the pain associated with the next morning, the depression, the depletion of, of the brain chemistry and no more serotonin left. Uh, it, would, it would leave me, you know, forgetful, not knowing where I was. It'd leave me with hangovers and pain. But as God, when God saved me and reconciled me to himself, as I became obedient to his law, have no other God before me. Don't be an idolater. Idolater. Now I actually don't experience that pain. Mm-hmm. I have peace. I have no pain. I don't have, I don't have the morning waking up with that terrible, terrible shame and guilt of what I did the night before while I was high. I don't have the terrible, terrible pain of the hangovers. I don't, I don't have the body aches. I'm not cut open all over my body, literally with holes all over my body with a trail of blood a mile down the street with my footsteps to the door, not knowing where I was because I, I want to obey God's law about him being the only God that I worship. I daily have more peace and joy and satisfaction because why he saved me, not just from my sins, but from me. Mm-hmm. And, and, the, and because I want to obey his law about not being an idolater, now I actually daily experience so much joy and pleasure and peace. Why? It's not just in a vacuum. It's because I'm obeying his law. Mm-hmm. And that's where that daily experiential piece is coming from is there's a method to it in terms of his law as the source. Yep. Amen. Well, that's yep. a great, I think a great point to end on. Jeff, Good. thank you so much for coming on the show. We're Thanks for having me, Pastor you. Joel. I'm always blessed to be on here with you, brother. Thanks so much for listening. But real quick, before you go, do us a small favor, take a moment and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the show. This is undoubtedly the best way that you can help us get this biblically faithful content to as many people as possible. Thanks so much.